beginning of the service uh, to buckle your seatbelts. Uh, I'm going to reiterate that. This is uh, a challenging text, a uh, challenging book. I sent an email out to the parents last night. Uh, want to reiterate that this morning if you haven't seen that yet. Uh, this is going to be a PG-13 sermon, uh, a PG-13 text that we're reading. Uh, there will be some colorful language used, not in, a, in order to be provocative, uh, but to bring out the intention of this text. So children who are listening and comprehending what's going on, uh, there are some things you may want to talk to your parents about after this. Parents, you obviously will want to talk to your kids about some of these things, but I just want to say we're uh, we're not skipping over things in the Bible. We're not shying away from hard things. Uh, we're going to see what God's word says and, and why it says it. It's very important. Um, so that's my little disclaimer at the beginning. Uh, so I would invite you to stand with me for the reading of God's holy word. Hosea chapter 1 through 3. It's a long passage. And again, just encourage you. I think Allie mentioned in her email, um, we're going to be going through some bigger chunks of text as we get through the minor prophets here in, in 32 weeks. Uh, there's going to be a lot to cover. And as you get that email and know what the text is for the following week, um, and actually I, I may have mentioned before, you can go on our website on the sermon page and you can find the whole sermon schedule so you can look at, look at it ahead of time. But I would encourage you to spend some time reading through these chapters and, and coming prepared because there is a lot to cover. So let's go now to God's holy word, Hosea chapter one through three. The word of the Lord that came to Hosea, the son of Beri in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, go take to yourself a wife of whoredom and have children of whoredom, for the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. So he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Deblame, and she conceived and bore him a son. And the Lord said to him, call his name Jezreel, for in just a little while I will punish the house of Jehu for the blood of Jezreel. And I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. And on that day, I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. She conceived again and bore a daughter. And the Lord said to him, call her name, no mercy, for I will have no mercy on the house of Israel to forgive them at all. But I will have mercy on the house of Judah, and I will save them by the Lord their God. I will not save them by bow or by sword or by war or by horses or by horsemen. <clears throat> when she had weaned no mercy, she conceived and bore a son. And the Lord said, call his name, not my people, for you are not my people and I am not your God. Yet the number of the children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, it shall be said to them, children of the living God. And the children of Judah and the children of Israel shall be gathered together, and they shall appoint for themselves one head, and they shall go up from the land, for great shall be, be the day of Jezreel. 
Say to your brothers, you are my people, and to your sisters, you have received mercy. Plead with your mother, plead, for she is not my wife, and I am not her husband, that she put away her whoring from her face and her adultery from between her breasts, lest I strip her naked and make her as in the day she was born, and make her like a wilderness, and make her like a parched land, and kill her with thirst. Upon her children also I will have no mercy, because they are children of whoredom. For their mother has played the whore. She has conceived them. She who conceived them has acted shamefully. For she said, I will go after my lovers, who give me my bread and my water, my wool and my flax, my oil and my drink. Therefore, I will hedge up her way with thorns, and I will build a wall against her so that she cannot find her paths. She shall pursue her lovers, but not overtake them. And she shall seek them, but shall not find them. Then she shall say, I will go and return to my first husband, for it was better for me then than now. And she did not know that it was I who gave her the grain, the wine, and the oil, and who lavished on her silver and gold, which they used for Baal. Therefore, I will take back my grain in its time and my wine in its season, and I will take away my wool and my flax, which were to cover her nakedness. Now I will uncover her lewdness in the sight of her lovers, and no one shall rescue her out of my hand. And I will put an end to all her mirth, her feasts, her new moons, her Sabbaths, and all her appointed feasts. And I will lay waste her vines and her fig trees, of which she said, These are my wages, which my lovers have given me. I will make them a forest, and the beasts of the field shall devour them. And I will punish her for the feast days of the Baals, when she she burned offerings to them, and adorned herself with her ring and jewelry, and went after her lovers, and forgot me, declares the Lord. Therefore, behold, I will allure her. And bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. And there I will give her her vineyards and make the valley of Achor a door of hope. And there she shall answer as in the days of her youth, as at the time when she came out of the land of Egypt. And in that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband, and no longer will you call me my Baal. For I will remove the names of the Baals from her mouth, and they shall be remembered by name no more. And I will make for them a covenant on that day with the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the creeping things of the ground. And I will abolish the bow, the sword, and war from the land, and I will make you lie down in safety. And I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice in steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. And in that day I will answer, declares the Lord. I will answer the heavens, and they shall answer the earth, and the earth shall answer the grain, the wine, and the oil, and they shall answer Jezreel. And I will sow her for myself in the land, and I will have mercy on no mercy. And I will say to not my people, You are my people, and he shall say, you are my God. And the Lord said to me, go again, 
Love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisins. So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a lethek of barley. And I said to her, you must dwell as mine for many days. You shall not play the whore or belong to another man. So will I also be to you. For the children of Israel shall dwell many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or pillar, without ephod or household gods. Afterward, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king, and they shall come in fear to the Lord and to his goodness in the latter days. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. God, this is a heavy text, weighty, challenging, confronts us in our sin. God, we need eyes to see and ears to hear this morning what you have for us from your word. Father, we ask that you would speak now by your spirit through your word, that your people might hear, that we might know who you are that you are the Lord. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So this is challenging uh, to start off with this much content. Um, there's a lot of background information that I don't have time to get into fully. There are a lot of dates and people and places. Uh, some of you are kind of geeked out by some of this stuff. So uh, I printed this off, this little insert in there for you. Uh, if you need a visual to follow that, I hope this is helpful. I'm not going to be uh, looking at this too much, but this really covers a lot of what we're going to be looking at over the next uh, 32 weeks. We're going to be highlighting many of these uh, different kings. You'll see there on that left column, uh, the kingdom of Israel in the north, the capital of Samaria, which fell in 722. You kind of see that halfway down. The northern kingdom fell to Assyria. So those are all the kings who are listed. You'll see in those kind of red brackets on the side of the kings are the prophets who prophesied during those times. So this is just going to kind of give you a little bit of a, a picture and a framework. You see Hosea there uh, prophesying from Jeroboam II all the way down to Hosea, which is actually the same name as the exact same name in the, the Hebrew, which is fascinating. It means the Lord saves. Um, on the right-hand side there, you see uh, kings of Judah and those who prophesied under Judah will be covering the nor northern kingdom first as we preach through Hosea and Amos, uh, and then we'll be getting into uh, some of the, the southern kingdom uh, things later on. So again, I would encourage you just keep this in your Bible. This will be a helpful thing to look at uh, as you're maybe reading the text ahead of time or as just as we're preaching. Uh, we can't obviously like keep referencing this and talking about all these details all the time, but this is, this is a really helpful guide for you. So uh, you can, you can hold on to that. I might even reference it a couple more times, but uh, that, that's just a helpful resource for us. So let's dive into the text. Now, right off the bat here, we are introduced to the prophet Hosea and his context, the word of the Lord, very important introduction here. We'll see it in many of uh, the minor prophets that the word of the Lord came to 
such and such a prophet here, obviously comes to Hosea, son of Beri. In the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, interestingly, it lists all these kings in Judah, who you can see on that right-hand side, um, were kings during his reign. It only lists here in uh, the, for the kings of Israel, it only lists Jeroboam when there were actually uh, six, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven kings there. Uh, the kings that followed Jeroboam were all pretty much worthless. Uh, and at one point, I think there was like three kings within six months. Uh, they just kept like murdering each other and they were all just pretty horrible. So uh, they're not even mentioned here. So that pretty much says uh, what it needs to say there. Um, again, these kings are listed here right up until 722, which is the fall of the Northern Kingdom. And Hosea mainly in his writing here mainly addresses the northern kingdom of Israel, again, which is that left side. Uh, the southern kingdom of Judah does come into play some, so we will be talking about that. So it's a little bit of the background. It's kind of getting into this, uh, this story here of Hosea. James Boyce, in his commentary, he calls Hosea the second greatest story in the Bible, uh, obviously next to Jesus, right? Next to Jesus' life, death, resurrection, Ascension, he says that Hosea is the second greatest story in the Bible. This is a pretty bold claim for what others have called the most scandalous book in the Bible. The first three chapters, which we're going to be looking at today, contain the bulk of the content that makes Hosea appear to be scandalous, and also perhaps the content that does make it the second greatest story in the Bible. These first three chapters, they operate a bit like a parable. There are multiple characters to whom we may tend to relate to for different reasons. Think about, for example, some of Jesus' parables. Think about the prodigal son. You may see yourself as the younger brother, or you may see yourself as the older brother. Story of the Pharisee and the tax collector, where Jesus is talking about two different ways to approach God in prayer. You may relate to one of those more than the other. And we are meant to feel this tension, right? We are meant to see ourselves in these characters. Now, clearly, we are not 8th century BC Israelites from the Northern Kingdom. However, I believe that we are still today meant to place ourselves in this story and ask, first, who am I individually? Who do I relate to? And then who are we corporately? How do we relate corporately as the body of Christ to what is being conveyed here? And we'll come back to that idea a little bit more fully uh, at the end when, after we walk through these three chapters. But we're going to unpack this chapter by chapter. So if you're taking notes, we're going to be looking at three different things. The first thing is a mirroring marriage. It's going to be all of chapter one and then chapter two, verse one. A mirroring marriage. Then we're going to look at punishment and promise in chapter two, two till the end of chapter two. Then chapter three is a magnifying marriage. So a mirroring magnet, a mirroring marriage, punishment and promise, and then a magnifying marriage. First, a mirroring marriage. Hosea is commanded by God here in verse two. God tells him, Go, take for yourself a wife of whoredom and have children of whoredom, for the land commits great whoredom by 
forsaking the Lord. Hosea's relationship with his wife and his children here are to serve as an analogy for God's relationship with Israel. It is a mirroring marriage because it is held up before Israel so that she might see her own brokenness before God. If you have any, ever heard anyone preach on Hosea, or if you've ever read any books or commentaries on Hosea, one of the big questions is whether or not this marriage is real or allegorical. Some people ask the question, how could God actually uh, ask his prophet to go and do this? And I'm not going to get into all the debate and the details about that, but I think James Boyce has a very helpful summary here of this, whether this marriage is real or allegorical. He says, if Hosea's story cannot be real because God could not ask a man to marry an unfaithful woman, then neither is the story of salvation real. The greatest story, right? Neither is that story real because that is precisely what Christ has done for us. He has purchased us for himself to be a bride without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. And he has done this even though he knew in advance that we would often prove faithless. So I think that answers the question, is the story of Hosea real or allegorical, or how could it be real? So as we see in verse 3, Hosea here went and he took Gomer, the daughter of Deblame, and she conceived and bore him a son. So we're first told just briefly about the marriage. Now we will be introduced to the children whose names carry deeply symbolic meanings. We, we see this in 1 Peter chapter 2. We've talked about this several times. This passage is referenced with the names of the children. First, we're told about a son, Jezreel. Jezreel means God scatters or can also mean God sows. The Hebrew word for Jezreel and Israel sound basically identical. It's just that one has a Z and one has an S. It's the exact same spelling except for the Z and the S. So there's obviously a parallel going on here. The name, as we see in verse 4, call his name Jezreel, for in just a little while I will punish the house of Jehu for the blood of Jezreel, and I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. If you look at your chart there, right under the prophet Elisha is King Jehu. His story is told in 2 Kings 9 through 10. Uh, Jezreel was the place where Jehu killed wicked queen Jezebel, the wife of Ahab. He also had 70 sons of Ahab slaughtered along with the prophets of Baal. As we'll see in chapter 2, Baal worship was the major issue for God's people at this time. So Jehu wipes out all these prophets of Baal. And Jehu does what the Lord commands him to do. So the question is, well, what's going on here? Why is there punishment when this is what Jehu was called to do? Well, if we keep reading in 2 Kings 10 verse 31, it says, But Jehu was not careful to walk in the law of the Lord the God of Israel, with all his heart. He did not turn from the sins of Jeroboam, which he made Israel to sin. Now remember, we've been saying that obedience to God's law and God's covenant is the main concern of the prophets. 
the first northern king, Jeroboam, he did not walk in the ways of the Lord or turn from his sin. And this same pattern was followed for over 200 years by every king in the northern kingdom until finally they were taken into captivity. The second child, a daughter, verse 6, she is named No Mercy. The Hebrew word here has many different connotations, many ways it could be translated. We could say no mercy. We could say no love or no compassion because God will not show mercy or love or compassion to Israel and he will not forgive them. But hope is held out in verse seven to Judah, the Southern kingdom. It says, I will have mercy on the house of Judah and I will save them by the Lord, their God. I will not save them by bow or sword or by war or by horses or by horsemen. This is almost certainly a reference to Assyria's inability to sack Jerusalem under Hezekiah in 2 Kings 18. You remember uh, they're surrounding the city, and they, but they don't take it. So this is probably a reference to that event that God saves Judah. The third child, then, another son is born, we see in verse 8, after she had weaned no mercy, she conceived and bore a son. The Lord said, call his name, not my people, for you are not my people and I am not your God. This is the final blow. This here is a picture of God's rejection of his people, a divorce of sorts. The language here, I am not your God, is a reversal of the promises that were made over and over to Israel up until this point. God made the promise in his covenant with Abraham in Genesis 17, 7, that he would be God to him and to his offspring after him. In Exodus 6, 7, when God promised to Moses that he would deliver his people from Egypt, he said, I will take you to be my people and I will be your God and you shall know that I am the Lord. In Leviticus 26, 12, which James preached on last week, looking at the blessings for obedience. God said, and I will walk among you and will be your God and you shall be my people. When Ruth asked Naomi that she might stay with her, she said, where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. This constant Old Testament refrain served as a reminder to the people of Israel, of God's covenant faithfulness. Now to hear these words, you are not my people and I am not your God. This is utterly devastating. Have you ever faced rejection in your life? Is maybe from a parent growing up, maybe from your best friend, maybe from a spouse, or perhaps you've been on the side of being the rejecter. I think there are a few things more painful in human re relationships than abandonment and rejection. It is 100% a result of the fall, and it's not the way that God intended our relationships to go. But just as our first parents rejected God in the garden, so the people of Israel have been living as if they don't care about God for centuries. But now the reality of their sin is staring them in the face. 
Hosea's marriage and his children are serving as this illustrative picture, these pictures of Israel's whoredom. And this is really bad news. Okay, this is, this is the kicking off of the entire collection of the minor prophets. And it's just this like destructive, awful chapter, this awful picture, right? So far. But look at verse 10. Look at the first word in verse 10. Yet. And we see this as a pattern in all three of our chapters today. First, there's judgment for their sin and their rebellion and their wickedness and their idolatry. But then there is restoration and mercy. And again, we've said it over and over, and we're going to be saying it over and over. This is the framework for the entire minor prophets. Pay attention to this, this cycle of, of judgment and restoration. What does God communicate to his people here, beginning in verse 10? Notice where he goes here. He goes all the way back to the promise to Abraham in Genesis 22. This is right after Abraham called God, or God called Abraham to sacrifice Isaac. And then God provides the ram. And this is, is what he promises to Abraham. He says that his, his descendants shall be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And God says here through Hosea in the second half of verse 10, in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, it shall be said to them, children of the living God. Those who were to be the recipients of this great promise, but who have had this harsh word of judgment about being cut off as God's people, they are reassured here of a future renewal where they are once again called children of the living God. Verse 11 here is clearly a messianic prophecy about what will happen under the ministry of Jesus. It says the children of Judah and the children of Israel shall be gathered together. Clearly, this never actually happened physically, right? If you look at your chart, Israel, Northern Kingdom goes into exile in 722, and they never return to the land. This is a future promise that Judah and Israel will be gathered together. And it says that they shall appoint for themselves one head. Obviously, this is pointing forward to Jesus, right? Because they were never gathered under one king ever again. They shall appoint for themselves one head. They shall go up from the land, for great shall be the day of Jezreel. Scattered Jezreel will now be sown Jezreel. She will be planted and she will be established. What a beautiful picture of reversal. The message to the children continues in chapter 2, verse 1, where there's, again, this great reversal of judgment. The children who had been cast off are now brought back by the mercy of God. And then they are to be the messengers to their mother here, beginning in chapter 2, verse 2, as we look at our second section, punishment and promise. The children here, who probably represent faithful Israelites, they are to plead with their mother, Gomer, who represents unfaithful Israel. The plea is seen there in verse 2. Plead with your mother. Plead, for she is not my wife, and I am not her husband, that she put away her whoring from her face and her adultery from between her breasts, lest I strip her naked and make her 
as in the day she was born. And make her like a wilderness and make her like a parched land and kill her with thirst. In other words, he's saying, leave your wicked ways and return to the Lord. Now we can't look in depth at all of chapter two here, but I do want us to look at verses five through eight. It says, for their mother has played the whore. She has conceived them and has acted shamefully. For she said, I will go after my lovers who give me my bread and my water, my wool and my flax, my oil and my drink. Now, clearly here, God is speaking right to Israel, right? The, the, The Gomer and Hosea thing is kind of in the background, but now it turns to speak directly to Israel. There's no like question here of like, oh, who's who's this about? Who are we talking about? God is speaking directly to his people here. The people said, I will go after my lovers. And and they say, they are the ones who give me my bread and my water, my wool and my flax, my oil and my drink. And God responds in verse six, therefore, I will hedge up her way with thorns and I will build a wall against her so that she cannot find her paths. God says, I'm going to come in judgment. I'm going to disrupt your plans. I'm going to make it so that you can't go after other lovers and find these things that that you think will satisfy. Verse 7, she shall pursue her lovers, but not overtake them. She shall seek them, but not find them. God here is putting a hedge of protection around her, interestingly, even in spite of her, her sin and her adultery. Then she shall say, I will go and return to my first husband, for it was better for me then than now. Verse 8, and she did not know that it was I who gave her the grain, the wine, and the oil, and who lavished on her silver and gold, which they used for Baal. God says, Israel, this whole time I've been, like, I brought you out of Egypt. Hello, right? Like, I parted the Red Sea when an army was bearing down upon you, and you come out. And you still don't get it, right? You still don't know that I'm the one who delivered you. And you're looking for all these other lovers. You're looking for for all this provision and all these other things. And all this time, it's been me. It's been me who's been giving it to you. Wake up, right? Wake up, Israel. How blind can you be? I have no idea where I'm at. Um, So... Yes, Baal worship. Baal worship was the main thing that was drawing God's people away from him. Baal was the Canaanite fertility god. There were gross sexual sins and and rituals that were associated with the the god Baal. It's why this language of Gomer's whoring here is so explicit. It's how God's people were acting. They were acting in this way. So this language that the Lord is using here is not inappropriate. Because it's accurate to what they were doing. And God will have none of it. Look at verse 13. He says, And I will punish her for the feast days of the Baals, when she burned offerings to them and adorned herself with her ring and jewelry, and went after her lovers and forgot me, declares the Lord. The Lord is the jilted lover here. And what should we expect his response to Israel to be. If you go read in Proverbs, the first uh, eight chapters of Proverbs, where it's using a lot of the same language of adultery, it talks about the man who 
will not rest until he takes vengeance, right, on the one who cheated with his wife, right? So we expect, what do we think? What's God going to do? Is he going to act like that? Is he going to take vengeance? What would we do? Think about that relationship where you felt abandoned. How do we respond? I'm done with you, right? I'm done with you forever. How could you do this to me after all that I've done for you? Or I'll show you. But how does the Lord respond instead? This is so incredible. Verse 14. Therefore, behold, I will allure her. We translate that word, persuade her. I will bring her into the wilderness. A place where she will learn dependence. I will speak tenderly to her. Really, God? After all that? What incredible mercy. Verse 15, there I will give her her vineyards and make the valley of Achor a door of hope. The valley of Achor, you may recall, is where Achan and his whole family were stoned and buried, stoned and burned and buried under a heap of stones in Joshua chapter 7 after Achan had taken plunder from Jericho. This place of judgment, this, this picture of judgment, it becomes now a door of hope. Again, a total reversal that can only be done by a gracious and merciful God. The future promises then continue. Notice the language at the beginning of verse 16. <clears throat> Notice this first phrase, and in that day. We see it again in verse 23. We see it in chapter 3, verse 5, at the very end of our section, the very last words, in the latter days. It refers to the day of the Lord. It's going to be another major theme that we'll be seeing throughout the Minor Prophets. In that day, verse 16, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband, and no longer will you call me my Baal. For I will remove the names of the Baals from her mouth, and they shall be remembered by name no more. Again, God promises he's going to restore that broken relationship. Verse 18, I will make for them a covenant on that day with the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the creeping things of the ground. I will abolish the bow, the sword, and war from the land, and I will make you lie down in safety. This covenant promise here, which resembles a return to Eden, peace with the animals, a total abolition of any elements of warfare. Again, total restoration that God is going to accomplish. Verses 19 and 20 are this amazing reminder of the character of God. After all that has gone down with God's unfaithful people, he promises to enter into a renewed relationship with them based upon who he is. Look at this. I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness and you shall know the Lord. The reason we spent so much time in the Psalms in our services, because this language is all over in the Psalms. Our call to worship from Psalm 136, 
that constant refrain, right? Saying that together 26 times for his steadfast love endures forever. Reminding ourselves over and over of who God is. We heard it. We heard it in our assurance of pardon from Psalm 103. We're going to sing it shortly. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. The word for compassion in Psalm 103 is the same word, mercy, here in Hosea. God has mercy on his children, compassion, love. And finally, the greatest promise of all at the end of verse 20, and you shall know the Lord. This is what we were created for, to know the Lord and to be known by him. This is what Israel sacrificed when she went after other lovers. And this is what God had to restore to his people, a true and unhindered knowledge of him. That's what is reiterated here in verses 21 to 23. God does for his people what they are simply unwilling and unable to do for themselves. God says, again, in that day, I will answer, declares the Lord. I will answer the heavens and they shall answer the earth. And the earth shall answer the grain and the wine and the oil and they shall answer Jezreel. And I will sow for myself in the land. Notice that imagery that that Jezreel means to sow. God is going to sow and, and plant his people. And I will have mercy on no mercy. And I will say to not my people, you are my people. And he shall say, you are my God. These promises are magnified even further in chapter three as we see a magnifying marriage. Remember, remember chapter one was a mirroring marriage because it revealed Israel's sin and rebellion. Chapter three is a magnifying marriage because it displays to us the relentless love of God. I quoted James Boyce earlier saying that Hosea was the second greatest story in the Bible. He also said that Hosea 3 is the greatest chapter in the Bible because it points us so clearly to the death of Jesus Christ for his people. The scene here depicts one of the greatest acts of love imaginable. God commands Hosea again. He says here, go again, love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress. Even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisins. God's love for his people, despite their blatantly adulterous idolatry, is magnified through Hosea's actions toward Gomer. And what does he do here? We don't know a ton of details, and there's actually a lot of speculation on this if you read commentaries. I think it's probably likely that Gomer has sold herself into slavery. Uh, she is now owned by another man. And Hosea goes and he finds her and he pays this price to buy her back to himself. And he says in verse three, you must dwell as mine for many days. You shall not play the whore or belong to another man. So will I also be to you. 
Many commentators also point out here that according to Old Testament law, law, Hosea had every right to put Gomer to death for her adultery. That was the standard practice in his day, and it's something that's actually practiced still in many places in the world. But despite her rejection of him, despite her rebellion, despite her whoring, that is not what Hosea does. Instead, he brings her home to a place of safety and love, a place that she ultimately does not deserve. However, her rebellion is not without consequences, just as God's people's rebellion will not be. Verse 4 here speaks of a time of exile, which Israel would experience after at, from 722 BC on when the Assyrians would invade. It says here, for the children of Israel shall dwell many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or pillar, without ephod or household gods. <clears throat> they would never again return to the land. But again, there is this promise of restoration after judgment. Look at verse 5. Afterward, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king, and they shall come in fear to the Lord and to his goodness in the latter days. Now, David has already been dead for 200 years at this point. So clearly, this is not speaking about actual King David, right? He's long gone. It's talking about the one who was promised to come from David's line, who would sit on David's throne forever. This phrase that concludes chapter three, in the latter days, was a powerful picture of a future hope for the people of Israel who were about to go into exile. And it is also a powerful picture of future hope for us here today. Now, up until this point, deliberately, I have been mainly focused on Israel as we've gone through this. We've needed to feel the weight of their rebellion. We've needed to see God's just judgment against, against their sin and rebellion. And just as that mirror was held up to Israel through Hosea and Gomer's marriage that they should look in it, we also need to take a look in that mirror. The question is, what do we see? Or who do we see? If you hold up the mirror in this story and you think that you see yourself in Hosea, then you've totally missed the point. Also, if you read this and you think the message is, husbands, be better husbands like God, and wives, don't act like Gomer, then you've also missed the point. You are Gomer. I am Gomer. We are the ones who have played the whore. We have rebelled against God and we are deserving of his just judgment. We should read this passage and be both individually and corporately grieved. We should be grieved at our own idolatry and how we chase after other lovers. We should be grieved at how we attribute all these other things that we have to ourselves or to others, providing them when it's God who has provided them. Corporately, as a church, 
as a denomination, as the evangelical church in America. We should be grieved for not being more faithfully committed to the one who bought us with a price. His own shed blood that he shed on the cross for our sins. But the good news of the gospel is that we don't hold up that mirror and see ourselves as Gomer and just sit there all day and stare at that ugly face in the mirror, right? We don't stare at that reality. The good news of the gospel is that God does not leave us to ourselves to do that. He doesn't leave us to wander and to chase after other lovers. He pursues us relentlessly. He will not let us go because we belong to him. Maybe you're here today and you're thinking, how on earth could God love me after all that I have done? After all the hurt and the pain that I have caused other people, after all of my sin and rebellion against him that other people don't even know about because I'm too ashamed to talk about it. How could God love me? How could Hosea love Gomer and welcome her back? How could God love Israel and welcome her back the same way that he can love us and welcome us back? Grace, mercy, steadfast love. I'd invite you to turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2. Page 976, if you have the Pew Bibles. Bibles. I'm going to have to disagree with James Boyce on this one, because I think Ephesians 2 is the greatest chapter in the Bible. Not only does it answer the question of what God has done for each one of us individually to save us, it addresses the question of how God can has and will restore his people to himself. Look with me at the first half of this chapter for the individual application. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Sound familiar? You were like Gomer. You were like the people of Israel, dead in your sin, in rebellion to God. And the two greatest words, I think, in all of Scripture, which is why I have to say this is the greatest chapter. Verse 4, but God. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages, in the latter days, on that day, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us 
in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Gomer, you didn't bring yourself back to Hosea's house. Israel, you did not come back to the Lord on your own. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Now, the other reason that Ephesians chapter 2 is the greatest chapter in the Bible because, is because of the second half. The second half of the chapter speaks to the corporate application of salvation and restoration for God's people, which Hosea spoke about in chapter 1 with Israel and Judah being gathered together under one head. I feel like I could go in the written papers in seminary on this passage, and I've talked about it so much with people, I feel like I could rant for hours, I won't, but I think so many things that we struggle with in the church, so many things that we struggle with in missions, so many questions that we have about, like, how does this work? How does reconciliation between peoples work? All these, they're all addressed right here in this passage. The question of the restoration of Israel and Judah under one head, it's addressed in this passage. Paul is writing here to Gentiles. He's writing to us, right? But he's talking about how all of this works, what God has done for us in Christ. He starts off in verse 11. Therefore, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Notice what he says here. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated. Notice the Hosea and Gomer language here, the, the language with the children. Alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. And two more amazing words. But now, okay, first, but God, and now, but now, but now, a total reversal. In Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Thank you, Paul, for your insanely long sentences. Verse 17, and he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him, Jesus Christ, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. Great Trinitarian text for when the Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons come and knock on your door. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens. Notice the parallel to Gomer and her children. You are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. 
built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Friends, this is our only hope. Not that we are able to pick ourselves up and clean ourselves up after we fall. But that we have a God who loved us so much and sent his only son to do the work of buying us back and cleaning us up. Doing the work of redemption that he alone could accomplish. That he might say to us, you are my people. And that we might say to him, you are our God. Let us pray. God, don't let us run from a text like this. Don't let us hide from you. Don't let us look to ourselves. Don't let us not deal with the reality of our own rebellion, but of your great mercy and your great love, your relentless love for us. I pray that this imagery of this marriage, this text that we've probably read before, maybe kind of just skimmed past because it's been too difficult, because we haven't wanted to to sit in it and wrestle with it. God, may we sit in it and wrestle with it. May we be reminded of the great lengths to which you went to save us. Sending your only son to buy us back when we were running after other lovers. God, may we run to you. May we embrace you by faith. May we never stop running toward you. When the world calls our name, when the evil one whispers in our ear, bidding us to to come and do his will, God, may we turn and run to you. Thank you that you have put a hedge of protection around your people. God, that no doubt you will let us at times suffer the consequences for our own sins, but we will not ultimately pay for our own sins. We will not ultimately be cut off from you because of the things we have done. It is by your grace and your mercy, your steadfast love alone. God, thank you for what you have done. And as we sing now to celebrate, to rejoice, God, may our hearts soar as we recall who you are and what you've done for us. Thank you for your relentless love. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen.